is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, your daily news magazine where we dig deeper in the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. KNX In-Depth, we dig deep and ask the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. On the menu for today's show, two years ago on this very day, life in the U.S. would change as we know it. The CDC confirmed the very first case of COVID-19 in the country. It came from samples taken in Washington state. Since then, the virus has spread everywhere, infecting tens of millions of people and killing more than 850,000 so far. So we'll, we'll go in depth into the COVID-19 pandemic two years later. We'll explore what we've learned and the progress that has been made in trying to save lives and slow the spread of the virus. Are we ever going to eliminate the virus? Some European countries considering drastically easing restrictions and learning to live with it. Should we do that here? We'll check in with a long hauler to find out how she and others like her are holding up a couple years in. And we'll look at what can be done to move us along to the end. And uh, what does the end look like? We finish the show with a little Hollywood. Brian Cox, Logan Roy on Succession will be with us to talk about the show and his new memoir that has generated a lot of buzz because uh, he's got some things to say about other actors. But we start with the pandemic two years later. With us is Dr. Anthony Fauci, chief medical advisor to President Biden. Doctor, let's begin with uh, the other week because it caused a lot of uh, confusion. An FDA official said something along the lines of just about everyone is going to get Omicron. And that left, uh, I think, a lot of people scratching their heads that we're all going to get sick. That was not what was meant, right? No. That absolutely is not what it's meant. And the operative word that you just mentioned is getting sick. And what I believe it was Janet Woodcock, the acting commissioner of the FDA, said that at a hearing, what she was referring to is that Omicron is such a highly transmissible virus that it will essentially be exposed to virtually everybody because of its ability to transmit from person to person. What will happen is that everyone likely will be exposed to it, and maybe everyone will get, quote, infected. But infected doesn't mean you get symptoms, and infected doesn't mean that you get sick. We know very, very clearly from good data with Delta, and there's no reason to believe it's going to be any different with Omicron, that when you look at the people who are unvaccinated versus those who are vaccinated, the likelihood of getting infected, of requiring hospitalization, or of dying is much, much, much higher in an unvaccinated person than a vaccinated person, particularly a vaccinated person who's boosted. So what she was referring to is that maybe we're going to get exposed and many, many, many of us will get infected even if we're vaccinated. But vaccination will protect you for the most part against getting seriously ill. Let's talk about the idea of this being milds because milds can mean different things and when we talk about you know exposure versus everybody's going to get it people can get the idea and some have that hey you know what i'll get this thing i'll get it over with it's going to be fine because we're all going to get it anyways but milds to me means you know oh a few days at home sore throat whatever milds to doctors can mean the worst flu of your life but you don't have to go to the er right so it can still be really really bad 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I'm glad you brought that question up because it really is the source of some confusion. If you look on a case-by-case basis in an otherwise normal population, there is no doubt that Omicron is less severe with regard to a requirement for hospitalization, for the duration of the stay in the hospital, for the requirement for mechanical ventilation. However, when you get so many people infected because it's so much of a highly transmissible virus, that you are going to get a proportion of those individuals who are going to get seriously ill. It will be much more weighted to the elderly and for those with underlying conditions. So you don't want people to feel that just because in general, Omicron may be inherently less severe than Delta, that everybody's going to be just fine with Omicron. That's not the case. You're going to see people who are hospitalized, and they're going to be people who die. And that's the reason why we say the good news is that on a population level, it's less severe. But you still need to protect yourself because you don't know. I mean, there are so many people with high risk factors. For example, the elderly. I mean, I am an elderly individual. (laughs) By the years, the number of years, I'm relatively healthy, but on the basis of my age alone, I'm at a much higher risk of a severe outcome. People with obesity, with diabetes, with heart disease, all of those people are at greater risk. So we don't want to be complacent. We want to accept gladly that Omicron is less severe in general, but we can't be overly complacent about it. Doctor, let's let's turn to these uh, new antiviral pills that have been approved. We've had people on the show saying that these are going to be real game changers, uh, changes, but uh, yet uh, we've heard from plenty of doctors who say you can barely get them. And some people were under the impression, you, you know, you just get COVID, run to the pharmacy and you'd be fine. That's not the way it's it's going to work, is it? Well, that's not the reality of where we are now with the pills. First of all, let me just make a couple of factual statements that people need to understand. It is always, always better to prevent an infection than to get infected and having to treat the infection. If you are infected, we now have some very good drugs that if given earlier enough in the course of the infection, can go a long way to preventing you from progressing to severe disease leading to hospitalizations and deaths. For example, Paxlovid, the drug by Pfizer, diminishes the likelihood of you going to be hospitalized or dying by about 89 to 90% if given very early in the first three to five days. Less effective is malnupiravir the Merck drug, which is only about 30% effective. You're right. Currently, the supply of drugs does not meet a demand for it, but the federal government has contracted with the companies to markedly increase the availability, for example, of Paxlovid 
to double the original contract. Mm-hmm. But there, but there's more than just a, a supply uh, and demand issue. You mentioned it in, in passing about there's a small window, right, of, of three to five days, I guess, depending on, on the med, uh, where these pills are going to be truly uh, effective. And yet, as you know, uh, going on now the, the third year of this pandemic, it is still really difficult in many parts of the country to get rapid tests. It's difficult to do a whole bunch of things that would allow somebody who is positive for COVID to A, find out that they're positive to begin with, and then be able to get access to these to these pills. I mean, that's a problem. Yes, it, there's no doubt you can't walk away from things that in the real world are problems, but you do the best you can and you try to improve on that and mitigate the effects of the problem. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, as you know, most recently, that the administration is giving out a half a billion tests that are free to individuals, soon followed by another half a billion for a total of a billion tests. One can now get tests at 20,000 testing centers, as well as distribution in different pharmacies. There has now been initiated an online capability of ordering tests to be delivered to your own home. So although that wasn't available a couple of months ago, right now, it makes it much easier. So we're moving rapidly towards a greater availability of tests, particularly point of care tests. And with that, the opportunity to move ahead with treatment for an early infection. The vaccine makers are talking about Omicron-specific vaccines. They say maybe springtime, maybe March, and then the criticism is, well, too little, too late. We would need needed them now. Where is the place in the world for the Omicron-specific vaccine? How does that end up getting used? Well, I'm not so sure that we actually will need an Omicron-specific vaccine. We are developing one just in case we do need it. But one thing we do know that the original vaccine was made against the ancestral Wuhan strain. And yet when we had alpha and beta and delta and now Omicron boosting after proper vaccination provides quite good protection. So although we may ultimately need to go on to a Omicron specific boost, it may not be necessary. We're working for a more universal coronavirus vaccine. In other words, one that doesn't chase after each and every variant. So a, so a, a pan-variant vaccine, right, that would cover all, all, your, all your bases. Was the reason why that wasn't initially developed because in the middle of a crisis, it was easier to go after the spike protein? No, no, not at all. First of all, you had to go after the virus you were dealing with. That just makes sense. Uh, It's much easier and much quicker. And as you probably know, the development of a vaccine was in an unprecedented record period of time, which has already saved literally hundreds of millions of lives already with the vaccine. That was the first step. The development of a universal coronavirus vaccine still needs to get over some scientific hurdles. Talk to the this is never ending 
crowd because I heard an interview the other day with somebody and they were they were at the airport and they were going to get on their plane and the soundbite was from this woman saying, you know what, I'm going to put on my mask and I just know that I'm never, ever not going to have to wear a mask at the airport again. This is going to happen for the rest of my life. We know all the different scenarios, other variants that could pop up, but really, are we going to have to be wearing masks at the airport for the rest of our lives? No. The answer to that is clear. And the answer is no, that this is not going to last forever. I think there will be circumstances during many outbreaks, like maybe in the influenza season, where people will elect to wear masks. I think people realize now something that we never realized, but that many countries, particularly in Asia, realize that well beyond and well before COVID-19, there were many people in in foreign countries, Japan, China, Korea, and places like that, that during the winter season, when there were respiratory diseases going around, they would voluntarily wear a mask. It wasn't mandated, but they would voluntarily do that. That could be the case sometime with us, but I don't think we are going to be wearing masks for the rest of our lives. I think that is an over-exaggeration. You know, uh, we had you on in the very beginning uh, of the pandemic, and one of us asked you at the time about whether we will be prepared for the next one. And I remember your answer was along the lines of, let's get through this one <laughs> first. And, and fair enough. But now that we're going into the third year of this, are there things that we have learned, that you have learned from this experience that does prepare us better for what will inevitably be, at some point, another pandemic? Yeah, we've learned some lessons that are productive lessons, and we've learned some very chilling lessons. We've learned that the science that got us to be able to develop a vaccine so rapidly, in unprecedented speed, less than a year from the time of the identification of the virus to the time you're putting a highly effective and safe vaccine into the arms of individuals. We've learned that we need global cooperation and collaboration and solidarity since global pandemics require a global response. The other thing that we've learned that we've gotta make sure that we keep political divisiveness out of our response to the outbreak because one of the greatest impediments to a comprehensive response is when public health principles are severely influenced by ideology and political persuasion. The common enemy is the virus, not each other. Dr. Anthony Fauci, back with us on In-Depth. Coming up, the uh, pandemic will end at some point. (laughs) We'll look into how we get there and what it looks like. Plus, if you watch the hit HBO show, Succession, You know the name Brian Cox. He plays media mogul Logan Roy on the show. We'll chat with him about his new memoir and what is next for the show. Right now, though, some European countries debating whether to cut back on many, if not all, the COVID restrictions as they look to adjust their strategy to uh, live with the virus. In the UK, they say masks will no longer be required uh, coming up. Uh, Should the U.S. do the same soon? Dr. Gene Marazzo, professor of medicine and director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So over in the UK, they're saying, look, we think we've peaked, so we're going to do this. Uh, too soon? Or, hey, we need off-ramps eventually. Is this one to take uh, relatively soon? Yeah, boy, thanks for having me, uh, guys. I, 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 One thing I'm very nervous about doing with this crazy virus is making predictions. Um, but since you asked me, um, I will say that I think 
that we will know more in the next week or so. What's happening in the United States is really interesting, right? We have, again, these regional patterns that reflect probably what people experienced with the Delta wave and what the population's immunity was due to Delta. So New York has had an Omicron uh, surge that is really probably starting to come down the region and there. We, on the other hand, are not peaking yet. We probably have at least another week of this pain. So what can you say countrywide? I think there's a whole bunch of little mini pandemics going on in the U.S. It's not as small as the U.K., and it's so much more complicated. What's the situation on the ground uh, where you are in Alabama? Yeah, you know, we are... um, I would say not rocketing up the way that we were, but we're still seeing a lot of infections. So I can tell you in our hospital, which has 1200 beds in Birmingham, you know, we have now around 200 plus patients, unfortunately, um, about 50 patients in the intensive care unit, most of whom are on ventilators. Most of those patients are unvaccinated patients. So we unfortunately do not have the vaccination coverage that every other place or many other places have. The problem with Omicron, though, is that vaccination is not preventing people from getting infected, right? It, we are seeing my faculty, our staff, that's, that's really the big challenge for places right now. You get infected, even if you were vaccinated and you don't have a severe infection, you still got to stay home. So the challenges we're facing really are severe disease in the large proportion of our population who are unvaccinated, plus the fact that even the people who are vaccinated are getting slammed with this. And it's not fun to get, even if you're fully vaccinated. So, and then the other problem just to mention is we have a record number of children hospitalized, over 100 in the state. And we're one of several states now that have set records. So that's really not a good situation. Real quick, do we need to be careful when we talk about peaks? Because some people might understand it as a cliff instead. It's a peak and then there's a slope, right? So even if once we get past the peak, you're only a little bit less likely to get infected than you were two days ago. It's not just like, oh, next Tuesday is great, folks. I see you've also learned some very good epidemiology um, uh, interviewing people during this pandemic. So that's great. You're absolutely right. Although what's interesting about Omicron is that the CDC and others have referred to these surges as more of an ice pick. Uh, patterns. So there does seem to be a rather precipitous drop compared to Delta. But again, predictions are dangerous with this virus. So thank you. (laughs) All right, Dr. Jean Marazzo, Professor of Medicine and Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases, University of Alabama, Birmingham. Doctor, again, thanks. You're listening to a special edition of KNX In-Depth, the two-year anniversary of COVID here in the U.S., KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. So year uh, two, year three of the pandemic, a lot of us eager to leave COVID behind, get back to normal. There are a large number of people who cannot, the COVID long haulers. COVID long haulers report experiencing a host of symptoms for weeks to months after testing positive for the virus. Now, these include change in sense of smell or taste, and persistent what they call brain fog. Are we any closer to helping these people recover? Diana Behrens, founder of Survivor Corps, support group for COVID survivors, a long hauler herself. So, uh, Diana, we getting any closer to, to helping people who are in your situation? Well, I wish I could say, I wish I had better news. Um, the number of people who are suffering from long COVID in the, this country is staggering. 
According to the CDC, one out of three cases ends up with long COVID. And we're not talking about people who are hospitalized. We're, I mean, also people who are hospitalized, but we're talking about people who had very, very mild cases. Um, one of our members actually took her own life this past spring after a two-year battle with long COVID, which came from an asymptomatic case. On the good news, um, I did just come back from five days at the Mayo Clinic where I met with their post-COVID care center, and they are light years ahead of the rest of the world on long COVID. And hopefully by working together, we can get that information into the hands of practitioners around the country because people are desperately in need of help. And when we're talking about the types of symptoms people are having, brain fog can sound like a hangover. It's really cognitive dysfunction. You know, we started off thinking about this disease as a respiratory disease and quickly understood it as a also a vascular disease. And I think that we will look back on it as in many ways, a neurological disease, because we are seeing people, our patients are having such severe issues. They're having Parkinsonian-like tremors and neuropathic pain that mimics advanced diabetes. Um, they have COVID-induced diabetes, lupus, you know, adrenal fatigue, erectile dysfunction, um, remember, every organ that relies on blood, on blood flow, can be damaged. Diana, when, yes, when... Every single organ does. Right. Now, you had COVID. When did you actually get COVID? I was actually got one of the first confirmed cases in the country. I contracted it on March 9th, 2020. Um, I did suffer from long COVID for a number of months, and I am thankfully on the other side but as I always say, I am a far better spokesperson than I am an example because most have not been as lucky as I have in my recovery. And from your own point of view, how bad was the long haul effect? Oh, I was sick for months and months and had a full relapse months. You know, um, you, even if you think you're in the clear, some of these symptoms don't come on for a couple of months. Um, so, I mean, even with my mild case of COVID, I ended up with a diagnosis of COVID onset glaucoma. I had encephalitis. I, you know, was seeing, I, I went through Mount Sinai's post-COVID care center at the end of August of 2020, right when it opened. Um, another example, my son had a mild case very early, actually before me, we only found out later on that he had had it through antibody testing. And he was 12, 12 years old, and nine months later, one of his front adult teeth fell out with no blood loss from vascular damage from COVID. And that is happening to people around the country. You said the Mayo Clinic is light years ahead of everybody else. What are they saying when it comes to, to treatment or trying to figure out what to do with this? So what they've done is they've looked at what's called the phenotyping and trying to cluster the different symptoms so that there are different paths to recovery depending on what subset of symptoms you have. And they have, you know, they've worked off of their other chronic disease um, studies and figured out some of the methods to help people, you know, how do you help neuropathic pain? How do you help these, um, you know, these headaches, the psychiatric issues, you know, there are, uh, the, you know, depression comes with this. So how do you monitor for that? 
Um, how can you help these individual symptoms? You know, I'm not saying that they have a magic cure. We're not there yet, but we are at the point where we are pushing for therapeutics. Um, we need to be beyond the stage of just reporting symptoms. The NIH was given $1.15 billion last February to study long COVID, and they are pouring all of that money into basically a big data project. There's no goal of therapeutics in all of that money. So we need institutions like Mayo and Yale who are doing leading work on, in this area to we need them funded we need you know we need that money to go towards research to get therapeutics to get help to people people are in pain they are suffering and they are you know they're losing hope diana Barrent, founder of survivor core that's a support group for covid survivors and uh, long haulers you're listening to a special edition two years of covid in the u.s and though we're all counting down the ways until the pandemic wanes, none of us really quite sure what that future is going to look like. We were talking earlier, Charles, you and I, before we started the show about when we first mentioned COVID, if we're going to do the two-year look back, it was in like the end of the show when we were doing some stories that uh, Mm -hmm. we used to do, like stories you might have missed that we didn't, right? Right. And this was one of those. It was like, we found a strange virus in in Wuhan, China. It was just a little blurb that was in some international newspaper. Yeah, it was a little clip, maybe an inch long, and it was talking about how some doctors in in China, and at the time I probably couldn't pronounce the name of the the city, had uh, thought they'd come across a number of patients with an unusual form of pneumonia that was impacting their lungs, and they were in, in serious condition, but they didn't really know what it was. And I remember then, uh, maybe a couple of weeks later, we tried to do a bigger segment on it. You may remember this. And we couldn't find a expert in this country that really was knowledgeable about it right. to talk about it. We thought maybe it would go away by, you know, yeah, but next nobody, Thursday or but whatever. Half the people we called didn't know what we were talking about. We do have an expert with us now, Andy Slavitt, former senior advisor for COVID response in the Biden administration, also former head of Medicare and Medicaid in the Obama administration, currently the host of the podcast In the Bubble. Andy, thanks for coming back to the show. So again, we were just talking about what it was like, you know, a couple years ago for us. As you look forward through the rest of this year, and granted, nobody has the crystal ball. But where do you think we are and where do you think we could be going? Well, good to be back and good to be with you. Um, Look, I think we are probably already on the tail end of the the downward slope, I should say, of the Omicron wave. And with with hope and a little bit of luck, um, we will have a lot of broad immunity between vaccinations and Omicron in this country. How much immunity, I think, will be an important question. but I suspect that you know most of the people I talk to think that we are going to have a quiet spring and summer, and uh, that, that while we may face more variants, uh, we will be by the time we get to um, another wave potentially, just like we do with the flu, it'll hopefully be be fall and winter. We'll have another round of maybe even better vaccines. We'll have antivirals and a number of tools so that you know, COVID becomes less and less and less disruptive as life goes on. That's the hope. Yeah, I was going to say, so let's say we get to the fall uh, and looking into that crystal ball that none of us really want to look into because it's dangerous, as we've discovered. But nonetheless, let's try to look into it in the fall. uh, People not needing to much wear masks, not worrying about going to work at an office if they so choose or if their employer, as it probably the case, their employer demands that they do. Uh, Are all these things going to go back to what 
we used to think of as normal life? Yeah, if only we didn't have to have jobs and show up in offices and yeah, I'm, I'm for that. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm for yeah. that. <laughs> it didn't didn't seem to work. Yeah. One one side effect of the pandemic. But look, here's the thing about about masks is they're pain in the butt. Nobody likes wearing them. Uh, and yet, if you really want to protect yourself, if you're in a if you're someone who's immunocompromised, have cancer, or uh, or or some other place where you feel vulnerable, uh, that is a great form of protection. A well-fitting mask. But as things ease, as there's less COVID around, uh, there's there will be less reason to wear it, and as uh, as people are more tolerant, taking risks, being in being inside, being in crowds, being in bars, and are less worried about COVID because of the other tools we have, you know, they'll be less inclined. And you know, I think what we have is a, a country that basically based on cultural differences. I think we'll probably have communities that with uh, when there's some COVID around, there'll be high amounts of mask wearing. Uh, you drive two hours in any direction and find a place where uh, there's a sign in the restaurant that says no masks allowed. Uh, and that's, that's, that's as much a cultural practice over time that'll, that'll take hold, I think, a little bit differently in different places. We know that other variants can come. Is it also, and, and look, they can come from wherever. We don't know where they're going to sprout up. But we are also in a race. If we are going to have like a quiet spring and summer, is it this, use this six to eight months, really try and vaccinate like the world to head off as much of that new variation as you can? Is that a goal? Wouldn't that be nice? Um, well, look, actually, uh, it might surprise people to, to listen to, to know this, but We've now vaccinated about 60% of the globe, uh, and we have, we've given out 10 billion shots globally. Um, so we continue to gain on it. And, you know, between that and prior infection, uh, you know, you do have a fair amount of immunity um, out there. But uh, the most remote places, uh, the most rural places in the world uh, that require a lot of effort, you know, still haven't been vaccinated. A lot of those places are in Africa. Some of those places are South America, parts of Asia, uh, and guess what? Parts of the U.S. Uh, as well. And some of that is also just facing down people who are still not sure that they want to get vaccinated. Uh, and, you know, that's a problem. Those that, are the ones that say they still need more info, right? <laughs> yeah, they're doing their own homework. Yeah. <laughs> but but, the, but the, the, the truth is actually... Um, People talk about it in political terms and geographic terms. The most pronounced way that this occurs is by age, by far. I mean, if you show me an 85-year-old, I don't care if they're Democrat, Republican, rural, or urban, they're vaccinated. Show me a 25-year-old and it's a toss-up. Show me a 10-year-old and they're probably not vaccinated. Andy Slavitt there, former senior advisor for COVID response, Biden administration. He's got that podcast in the bubble. Andy, thanks for coming back. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. With a 60-year career, Brian Cox is nothing if not a Hollywood legend. Most of us now have uh, grown to love-hate him as Logan Roy in uh, HBO's Succession. Yeah, it's a great show. His latest memoir, Putting the Rabbit in the Hat, now available here in the U.S. It is already sent the internet buzzing and we will get to that brian cox welcome to the show hi how are you 
Very good. Hope you are well as uh, as well. Uh, let me ask you something, because uh, I th- it's such a great show. It really is. Uh, and you are so good in it. And yet I was amazed to learn, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you were originally slated to only be in it for one season and then die. Is that right? Uh that was the uh, that was what was told to me by my manager. I, I, I don't even know if that was really true, but my manager said it's it, apparently it's only a one season part. And when I had the conversation with uh, Jesse Armstrong and uh, Adam McKay, I was actually in um, I was in London. Uh, Adam McKay was in L.A. and Jesse Armstrong was in Italy. So they were worlds apart. And I did bring it up. I said, so it's a one season part. Is that it? I, I, I was, uh, and I didn't mind actually. And there was a huge pause from either side of, on the Pacific and <laughs> on the Asiatic, <laughs> a huge pause. And they suddenly both said, oh, no, 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 I, I think it's going to be more than one season. And that's how it turned yeah. out. <laughs> plus, good plus if you're not yeah. there, what is all the maneuvering for? <laughs> um, exactly. You've also said that, you know, he wouldn't like you and, and maybe you wouldn't like him if, if you met each other. So let me ask you this. Is this the kind of show, because the way, you know, we envision this working, you guys get a script on Monday or Tuesday, you wait a few days and then you film and then you, you get the next one the next week. Are you like us since the show is is this good where you're just dying to know what's going to happen the next episode? Well, yeah, I mean, I kind of what happened to me was on this last series that we did just before COVID, I again was in London and the writer's room is in London. So I was, uh, Jesse summoned me and said, would you come over and say hello? And I went and it was literally the day before we had to fly out because everything was in lockdown. And he said, do you want to know what's happening for the final series for the series? I said, Jesse, I I don't really want to know because you've never told me before. So why are you telling me now? He said, I think it would be good to be new. So he did tell me. So for, uh, well, that was in March 2000, I can't remember, I think it was 2019, and then COVID, then we postponed, and then finally we got it together in, the, yeah, 2020. I mean, it's the years old sort of go like Time doesn't years. exist anymore, right? <laughs> but, but, here, but, here, but here's and, the thing, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, that was, you know, uh, it happened the way it happened, so I had to hold that secret for quite a while. And, you know, when the final episode aired and, and people here at the, the station know this is the case, I remember coming in and I r- raved about it. I thought it, it was, was blown away. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was it was one of the better uh, shows uh, uh, on TV, quite frankly, the, the very last episode. And yet you apparently are not that thrilled. Is that right? With the way the final episode came out? No, no. I, it, it's It's a question of choice. You know, I. I, I just felt that they, 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 there was a, an editorial choice that they had to make, uh, and I understood why they made it. I, I would have gone down a different route uh, because I would have gone down the Roman route. They decided to go down the Shiv route, and it's obvious because of the cliffhanger of the relationship of Tom and Shiv and how that's going to happen since Tom has given me support. But I felt also that... that, that to me, just what was a shame, because there was this wonderful scene between Peter Friedman and and, uh, and uh, uh, Kieran, who's wonderful. Kieran is just extraordinary in the show. And, and I've just watched that boy develop as a, into a brilliant actor over five years. It's incredible. And uh, 
there was just, it's, it's the moment when he says to me, and I, I says, what have you got to offer or something? And he says, well, what about love? Love isn't exactly coming from my children <laughs> at that point. And then there was a follow-up to that where Peter Freeman just really lets him have it. So, and I just thought, well, that's the kind of disappointed. I'm not the writer, so it's not my choice. It's nothing to do with me. But I just thought, well, I just wanted to see Roman, the effect it had on him, because I felt as much as the effect it had on Shiv, but we were left with Shiv in the final frame. And again, that was a directorial choice, you know, and that's the way it is. You know, I mean, it's, it works and it works bloody well. The whole thing works. So I'm not complaining in that way. It's just a question of uh, just choice, just saying, well, it could have been this, you know. So, Brian, let's talk about, uh, first of all, acting, because, um, you know, there's some actors who, when they are on screen or on stage, the audience is just glued to them. And, and, and the whole scene really ends up being a scene that revolves around them. And, and I do think you are one of those type actors. When you're in a scene in succession, as fine as the rest of the cast uh, might be, and they are, something different happens. There, there's a different level that happens when you're in the scene. What is that quality that an actor has that you have that that makes that happen? That's a rather difficult question to answer. But I think I can only relate it in relationship to the role. And the great thing about Logan, and it's the thing that you have to invest really strongly in, is his mystery, is who is he? Uh, because there's more to him than meets the eye. You know, there's not, he's not the person that, you know, I mean, if you look at it, you know, when you take it all apart, you realize that he has, what he's trying to do is find a successor for his family, for his family business. And none of the kids are stepping up to the mark at all. So he's got a real dilemma on his hand. But at the same time, uh, he's, manner with his children has not been particularly good and I was told very early on when I, we started that that Logan loves his children now that in a way is Logan's secret is that actually he really loves his children so if he really loves his children that creates a conflict in him even though we don't see it we never play it it's there but it also goes into his own relationship with his own family I mean his his mother and sister and all all that background that's there. And, and therefore, he's a sort of, there's something quite uh, ultimately, though he would never play it, quite tortured about Logan. But that's all the secret. So that's the kind of fuel that you use to stoke the fire of the character, you know. So the book is is here in the U.S. And, you know, there have been a lot of press about it and things that you said in the book about other actors. So let's clear the air on that because i read the, the deadline interview where you said you know a lot of this book is supposed to be about acting but everyone's just focusing on what i said about you know johnny depp so were you dragging johnny depp or is this just hey i'm having a conversation about how i see acting and this is what i like and this is what i don't well you know uh, can you hear me okay oh you're loud and clear fine yeah no i just i, I feel that uh, in the relationship to johnny depp you know i i think johnny depp there's I mean, when I said Johnny Depp is overrated, I meant I didn't mean that he's overrated in the sense that everybody, you know, that he's he does not, doesn't deserve to be rated. I think that he is rated considerably, but I think he himself would say I'm overrated. 
I think he himself would probably say, you know, it's fine because there's a, a modesty about Johnny Depp. I actually like Johnny Depp's acting, but I do feel I have certain reservations. I don't think he's a bad actor. I think he's a considerable actor. But I do think there's a sort of hype about him that gets rather hysterical. And in that way, it becomes overrated. And what about Michael Caine? Because uh, Michael Caine comes up, too. Well, Michael Caine, you see, Michael Caine is another example because and I'm actually doing an addendum because I'm a bit quick. I admit that I can be a bit sharp for my own good sometimes. And Sometimes it's, it's, it's to get the joke in the book. So when I reread the book, I thought, oh, that's a little bit quick. And in fact, I did an addendum, which was supposed to be in the American publication, but it never made it. Because if you I don't know if you've, I take it you've read the book. Yes. Because the, the whole point about the book is it's a conversation that keeps going on. And I keep interrupting myself. I talk to the reader. I go on to another subject and then I come back to that subject. And in the same way, I'm, going, I'm readdressing certain things in the addendum. One is the Michael Caine thing and the Johnny Depp thing. And the other is my, my own kids, which I'm a little bit short with in the book, partly because they're teenagers. And if you're a father of teenagers it's, or a mother for teenagers, it's even worse. It's, they're not easy because they're, they're having these hormonal things. And my boys have grown beyond book measure. So I decided that I decided I wanted to put a balance to that. And for example, in, in Michael Caine, yeah, I mean, Michael Caine is an institution. There is, there is a question of range, if you like, but also he created Alfie, which is a formidable role. He also played that wonderful part in uh, The Man Who Would Be King with Sean Connery, which is a great movie, and he's extremely fine in it. What is important to me about Michael Caine and what I'm going to go on to say in the addendum is that Michael Caine has always honored his working class roots. He's always honored the the Micklewhite family, which is where he comes from. He comes from Battersea. And that's the thing I have total respect for, for him, even though he hasn't got, you know, his range is, it's Michael Caine. That's what you get. And and it's good. You know what you're getting. You're getting Michael Caine. So, so Brian, so, so Brian, let me ask you something. So if somebody were to write a book now about you, what would they say about you? Oh, he's a pain in the ass. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. There there it is. (laughs) He's got good humor. Okay. What, what can you tell us about the, what can you tell us about the next season of succession? You haven't started shooting it, right? No, no, it's way off. I haven't even written yet. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the next season. It's a, it's a big mystery. You know, it'll all be revealed when we get down to it, which probably not be for quite a while yet. Why write it? I mean, they've only started writing it now. Why do, why do people, why do you think people love it so much? Because people love people to hate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess they love hating. You know, they, they pretend they don't. They say, oh, well, you know, we, there's nothing that, you know, this person doesn't add anything to the great world experience, but they love to hate. And they love, you know, they love all these complicated. I mean, look, I mean, it's Dynasty, uh, Dallas, all those series that we've had in the past, and JR, and these, you know, these iconic characters, and Logan is one of these iconic characters. So naturally, they love to dislike. I think <laughs> the writing is of a, a much greater standard than all that, because there is a real, a satirical and a real political drive to the writing, you know, not in a, not in a major, not in a capital P sense, but in a small P sense. 
Brian Cox, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Nice to talk. It's on succession and the book, Putting the Rabbit in the Hat. That's in-depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.